four months ago, while our young people were preparing for the Bible Bowl test on 1 Corinthians, we began our study of the book of 1 Corinthians with the idea in mind that we would study the same material that they would be tested over, and then we would be able to try to reinforce the teachings that are found in that great book. When the time came to finish the book of 1 Corinthians, which we did last week, I was trying to plan what I thought might be the next best study that we could do, and I thought it's really makes good sense to go ahead and study the book of 2 Corinthians as we have studied the book of 1 Corinthians and for us to be able to grasp some of the great lessons that Paul provided for that congregation. We're going to begin with the idea of second chances as we study this book. And the question is, what are second chances? For many of us, if you start asking what is a second chance, it is an opportunity for a do-over. It's an opportunity to fix a mistake that we might have made. It's an opportunity for us to correct something that may have been misunderstood. You perhaps will have a conversation with someone. And after that conversation, the person didn't actually get what you were trying to say. And you have a second chance to be able to say something to them, to try to make an impact on them. Well, you see, spiritual mistakes have been made by the church at Corinth. And God gives people a window, a space of time, if you will, to repent. And here the church at Corinth in chapters 1 through 16 of 1 Corinthians have been given directions of how to deal with some real problems. They dealt with some of them. Others are still remaining. And Paul follows up with a book of 2 Corinthians or a second letter, if you will, to try to be able to provide the church there some additional teachings and the correction of some things that they had misunderstood. If you will, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And here's what we're going to look at today in our lesson. We're going to look in verses 3 through 11 at the suffering which they were enduring. The church at Corinth, like most of the other churches were facing among them persecution for being a child of God. Second of all, we're going to look at verses 12 through 20 at the sincerity of Paul. Sometime between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul had become aware of the fact that they were not happy with him because he had changed his itinerary the direction he was going to go in coming to them. And they were not happy and they began to question Paul's sincerity. Then in verses 23 and 24, we want to look at security. What the Bible would say about their being Christians and their knowing that they can be right with God. Let's begin our study and look at verses 3 through 11. And there Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, 
So our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for the enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us and whom we trust that he still will deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Now, the first thing that you will notice, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he calls him the God of all comfort. You have to realize in the face of suffering, there are opportunities to be comforted. And it is God who provides for us that comfort, who gives us that encouragement. I want you to imagine, for instance, this morning, as you are exiting the building, that there will be some thugs serving on the behalf of our government who would decide in their wisdom that we needed to be beaten for our faith. And as you walked out, you were being kicked, you were being hit, or something that was very negative being done to you. Now, that's what the early Christians faced. When you think about that kind of persecution, that kind of suffering, to whom do you go? You recognize that he is the God of all power. And in doing so, we approach that God of all power and say, please deliver me from this. But then he says that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the trouble with which we ourselves are comforted of God. God comforts us and then we in turn provide comfort to others. You see, I would imagine that if we were walking out the door and someone were to kick us, to hit us, knock us to the ground, there, there would be other of us who would reach down, pick them up, begin to try to uh, apply some sort of encouragement as far as words, and then maybe some physical help as well for those who were being treated. You see, in the early church, God used people. Just like today He uses People to be able to provide the comfort and the encouragement. But see, Christians should expect to suffer. I know we in our country today are extremely blessed. I don't expect that departing services this morning, anyone will attempt to harm us. Frequently in our prayers, we pray, we thank you, Father, that you allow us to come unharmed, 
to be able to worship in peace. Not every country enjoys this. In fact, there are many countries where if we were doing what you and I are doing this morning, you would see significant persecution. You would see it in China. You would see it in any of the Muslim countries. You would see it in other countries that we would be persecuted for our faith. You ought to expect that. But he also emphasizes that you likewise should expect comfort because God will provide it and godly people will provide it. In John 16 and verse 33, Jesus said, In the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You are in a world that has that in it. Jesus said, I overcame it and you can overcome it. 2 Timothy 3.12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I don't know when, I don't know where, and I don't know how, but I do know that each of us, as we strive to be faithful to God, will bring out of worldly people their displeasure and their anger. I believe it will happen within our children's lifetime that even in this country, those who seek to do what is right are going to have to stand and face some sort of maybe even physical persecution for it. Paul uses himself as an example to the Corinthians. He wants them to see that it's been in himself so that they will appreciate it. In fact, he says that we were burdened beyond measure. Above strength, despaired even of life, and had in us the sentence of death. Those words portray Paul in a situation which was life-threatening. One in which he didn't know that he was going to escape. In fact, what he will do is he says this relates to what occurred at Ephesus. When Luke records in Acts 19 and verse 23 what occurred, he said about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. Luke goes on to record that the people rushed into the theater there in Ephesus and that for two hours they cried out, Great is Diana the Ephesians. Had Paul or others ventured into that theater, they most certainly would have lost their lives. You had a riot. You had a mob of people angry. When he wrote the Corinthians earlier in chapter 15 and verse 32, he said, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts in Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul said, Why would a person venture themselves into any situation that was life-threatening if there was not a resurrection of the dead? His suffering." was certainly one of challenge. But Paul said, God delivered. He delivered through our prayers and most notably, your prayers. Now think about this for just a moment. Very first thing, the church is being talked to about suffering. How are you going to endure it? What kind of conditions will you find yourself in? You need to go to the God of all comfort You need to pray to God and ask for His blessings. 
But now the second part is Paul's sincerity. Pick up with me now. Let's read verses 12 through verse 20. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end. As also you have understood us in part. That we are your boast as you are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence I intended to come to you before. That you might have a second benefit. To pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you, and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things that I plan, do I do plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be a yes, yes, and a no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Salvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God are in him, are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now evidently Paul is receiving some criticism for his change of plans. If you notice evidently prior to Paul's writing 1 Corinthians. He had instructed the Corinthians how he was going to make his trip. When he wrote 1 Corinthians chapters 15 and 16. He explained that there were chapter 16 that he was going to change his plans. And that brought about some real confusion on their part. But why did Paul change his plans? He tells them back in chapter 16 and in verse 9. He says, for a great and effective door has been opened to me and there are many adversaries. See, Paul made his plan, but something come up. There was an open door. Let me illustrate this to you. Last Sunday morning, just as soon as class was over, I left immediately to go to Montgomery for the Faulkner Lectures. However, I already planned in my mind that I was going to make it to the services at the Redland Road Congregation on Sunday evening, which I did. But what would have happened had some people came last Sunday morning and said, we're interested in becoming Christians. We don't know what we need to do. Will you sit down and talk with us for a few minutes and explain to us the gospel? I would have been more than glad to stay ever how long it took in order to teach somebody the gospel. It's not often you get people who come off and say to you, hey, we really want to study the Bible. We really want to become Christians. When that opportunity presents itself, you take those opportunities. Paul was planning on going to Corinth, but he changed his plan because an opportunity availed itself. 
But if you go back and look at verses 8 through 11 that we just considered, Paul also faced another challenge beside a great opportunity. He faced persecution. What would have happened had in my plans last week, prior to leaving, someone said, you're not going anywhere. In fact, we're going to make your life miserable. That would have been awful. But those kind of things can change a person's plans. And thus Paul frequently says the words, Lord willing. Just think with me for just a moment how Paul just said that about every occasion that he had. Acts 18 verse 21 It says, but he took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. You see, Paul is leaving from Ephesus and he's going to Jerusalem. And he says, I'll come back, God willing. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 19. But I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. He said, my plans are to come if the Lord wills. James 4 verse 15 says, Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. We make plans all the time. But we should be willing to say, if the Lord wills, I will do this or do that. Because it's possible that that's not what the Lord will want to take place. Now, Paul, in answering that, says, We conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. And when you read those words, simplicity, it may be easy to miss the point that he's making, but simplicity indicates singleness of thought versus somebody who's living with duplicity, multiple thoughts. A person has only one and one intention alone and it's nothing else. In James chapter 4 verse 8 he says, Cleanse your hands you sinners, purify your hearts you double-minded. Double-minded people are those who will say one thing and do another or say one thing and think another. I've got two mindsets involved. Paul says we conducted ourselves in simplicity. In godly sincerity. And he goes on to explain, we didn't write anything to you other than what we intended. I've observed, and I'm sure you have as well, that there are people who will talk to you and tell you one thing, but you know that they're not telling you what they're really thinking. Sometimes a person will butter you up for the the purpose of gaining your favor, but in their minds they've got something an ulterior motive. And in Paul's case here, there's no intent to deceive. He didn't tell them, I'm coming now and then change his mind because he was trying to catch them. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 2, he writes, but we renounce the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We're not the kind of people who live like that. So when you question Paul's sincerity, is Paul in his mind here telling them the truth? 
See, a change of plans doesn't necessarily imply insincerity or carelessness. In their minds, it had to be either Paul wasn't telling the truth or Paul was just being careless when he made his promises. And I will tell you that it's possible for a person to be frivolous and be careless when they make promises. Particularly as they make spiritual promises. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 and 5 says, Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you're on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And then he goes on to say in verse 4, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vowed. Better to not vow than to vow and not pay. We need to be careful about what we say and what we promise. And there are those who do that, but that's not Paul. Paul reflects the same kind of idea that's found in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 10. Where Jeremiah was delivering the promises of God that if the people didn't repent, that they were going to be punished, in fact, destroyed. And he says, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I've spoken turns from its evil, I'll relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the reverse of that in verses 9 and 10, if he said, I'm going to plant it, I'm going to build, and he says they do evil, he says, I'm not going to do what I said I would benefit it. Paul's plans were based upon if God wills. That brings me to the very final part of our study in chapter 1, and that's in verses 23, or 21 through verse 24. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us a spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but are fellow workers for your joy. For by faith you stand. Now, Paul begins with the emphasis upon his divine role. He talks about God having anointed us. The word anointed brings to mind the commission under the Old Testament where a prophet, a priest, or a king would be anointed with olive oil that would run down on the beard. In other words, it was a, it was a commission given. And there was an anointing that took place, not necessarily a physical one, but a spiritual one, with the miraculous coming of the Holy Spirit. To listen to Acts 10 and verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power who went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Notice Jesus received the anointing. When did it come? It came when he was baptized. You saw the Spirit descending and lighting upon him. Those miraculous things that Jesus did Paul said, we have been given this anointing. 
But then he turns and talks about us as Christians, and particularly those who were Corinthians. And he says, we have been sealed. The word for seal there is a mark. It's a mark that distinguishes, for those who've been attending our Monday morning Bible class, we've been studying the book of Revelation. And we've been talking about how that the children of God were marked by God. Those who were serving the beast, those who were serving the civil authorities there were also receiving a mark on their hands and on their foreheads. There was some distinguishing difference between them. Well, here he says, the Holy Spirit has marked you. Listen to Ephesians 1 and verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were marked that you are God's people. Now, when you start thinking about the security of that, God knows those who are his children. God can look down from heaven and say, this one is mine, that one is mine, this one over here is mine. Sometimes you may be a part of a group and the leader of that group say, I don't know, are you a part of our group or not? Not the case with God. God knows each and every one of us, knows who we are. We know that we're His. Listen to Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. Nevertheless, the solid foundation, or if you're reading the old translations, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. God knows who we are. As Paul's writing Corinthians, God knows who you are. And he knows that you're his children. Everything that Paul was doing was for the very purpose of trying to save their souls. In fact, he chose not to come at that particular time to spare them. Now the question arises, why would you not come if an opportunity presented itself. It's because you can come at the wrong time. I've often found that people think that you deal with things immediately. No, you don't. Because sometimes if you force something before it's ready, things will not turn out as you want them to turn out. Listen to Solomon's wisdom in Proverbs 30, verse 33. For as the churning of milk produces butter, and the wringing of the nose produces blood, so the forcing of wrath produces strife. You force anger when it's not prepared to be dealt with, and all it's going to do is produce even more strife. So Paul said, to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. But then I get to verse 24, such an important verse. In fact, if you didn't get anything else out of the whole lesson, I want you to notice the importance of verse 24. Paul says, not that we have dominion over your faith. Or as other translations say, not that we have lordship over your faith. No one else rules over your own faith. 
You are ultimately responsible for what you believe and nobody can take that away from you. In fact, there's security in knowing that nobody can take our faith from us. People often misuse John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. But I want to draw attention to what the Lord really said. And I will give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. There's some people today who say that there's no way you can be lost, have this idea that you can't ever be lost. But he didn't say you can't walk away from the Lord. You can do that. But there's no one who can take your faith away from you. No one has lordship over your faith. For by faith you stand. If you are here and you are faithful to God, it's because you made a choice to do what God told you to do. Nobody can take that away from you. For the Corinthians, they needed to hear that wonderful message. This second letter allows Paul to correct their misunderstandings, to clarify what they needed to do in order to be acceptable to God. And what does he do? He talks about, first of all, their suffering, explains to them how that suffering affects them, to reassure them that their struggling under persecution is being noticed by God. Pray for that. Then he points out, I'm not trying to do anything other than to save your souls. I'm not being insincere. He said, I've been true with you. I've been right with you. And then finally, he wants to point out to them that it's all worth it. I want to borrow a passage from Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 8 and verse 18. For I considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Regardless of what you and I have to endure here, there is a better place. There are greater promises than this world. And let me encourage you, if you're not ready to do that, to go to heaven, to enjoy those blessings, to make the changes this morning. I know that there are those here who have not yet obeyed the gospel. You've not yet repented of your sins, confessed your faith, and been baptized. The baptistry is prepared for you behind me. There are garments prepared for you. It really just is a decision on your part, a choice on your part. We don't have dominion over your faith. You do. But you can express it this morning by becoming a Christian. It's possible that you're here not living faithfully with God. The Lord's invitation, just as that father's was to the prodigal son, you can always come home. We want you to come back. We would love to be able to rejoice with you. If your response to the Lord's invitation is to obey this morning, would you come as together we stand and sing?